Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're studying the five hindrances to enlightenment. We're also going to be discussing the seven factors of enlightenment. This is a topic that we covered back in chapter three in terms of the seven factors of enlightenment, but those are actually remedies in some cases to the five hindrances. So since we taught the seven factors of enlightenment so long ago, I'm going to refresh your memory on what those are and how they are applied so that then we can lead into the five hindrances and helping you understand what these five hindrances are, how to identify them, and then how to remedy them or eliminate them from the mind. Because these are the five things that the Buddha felt were the most hindrance or the biggest obstacles to your enlightenment. And you're going to see what those are and how to actually remedy them through the Buddhist teachings. Because you'd like to know if any of these obstacles are there. And maybe some of these obstacles aren't there right now. But what you might observe is that at a later point on your walk to enlightenment, these hindrances or one of them might arise. And when they do, you would like to be able to be aware of it, notice it, and then have the solution to actually eliminate it. So learning the five hindrances is really important for your path to enlightenment so that you can remove these obstacles and ensure that as they arise or if they arise, that you have the solution in order to resolve them. As we go, just like all the time in our group learning program, you're welcome to ask questions. If you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, all you need to do is put your question into the comment section. Our moderators will see that and be sure that your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand for any questions or any follow-up questions in order to get your questions asked and answered. So thank you all for being here. This is our group learning program where we meet on Sunday and Wednesday. And on Wednesday, we're actually restarting this whole group learning program from the very beginning. So if you've only been in this program for a short period of time, or even if this is your first time clicking on one of our classes, then you'll know that you can restart this on Wednesday. We start from the very beginning. It's a seven month program where I walk you through this book Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, Volume 1. And when you learn with this book, it really helps to lay a foundation and a framework for the Buddhist teachings in this path to enlightenment. Not as belief, but to learn, reflect, and practice to move the mind to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. On that path, you may encounter some of these hindrances. So let's be sure we discuss them and talk about the remedies. 
As we talk about the Buddha's teachings, let's first look at just one little thing that he says about the five hindrances. There's multiple places where he talks about the five hindrances in his teachings, and I've just grabbed one of those for our class today. But if you explore this entire book series, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment Revealing the Hidden, you'll see in all the different volumes, because there's a, it's a 13-volume set, you will see that there's various places where the Buddha talks about the five hindrances. In volume one, I don't talk about the five hindrances. I wait until those later volumes to start bringing them up. But here at the end of our group learning program, it's a really great way to kind of end our group learning program now that you've learned all the teachings, or not all, but a good amount of the teachings to build that foundation and that walk that path to enlightenment. Now that you've learned those things and are probably practicing some of those, well, here at the end, it's kind of good to see like what are some of the things that would hinder me in attaining enlightenment. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So here's just some words from the Buddha so that you don't have to believe me that he even taught this, that you can see with your own eyes that it is part of his teachings and you'll see other places besides this where he talks about it. Here he says, monks, there are these five hindrances. What five? The hindrance of sensual desire, the hindrance of ill will, the hindrance of complacency, the hindrance of restlessness and worry the hindrance of doubt. These are the five hindrances. This noble eightfold path is to be developed for direct knowledge or experience of these five hindrances for the full understanding of them, for their complete destruction, for their abandoning. So remember that the eightfold path is the core central teaching of the Buddhas that everything plugs into. So by learning and practicing the Eightfold Path, you're working towards eliminating discontentedness and getting to this enlightened mental state. And there's all these kind of extra teachings that kind of plug into it in one way or another. Well, the five hindrances also plug into the Eightfold Path and the Buddha's pointing here and saying, hey, it's the Eightfold Path that's gonna to lead to the elimination of these five hindrances. But there's other parts of that Eightfold Path that are kind of laying on the outside, like the seven factors of enlightenment that don't have a particular step on the Eightfold Path, but it's kind of like an ancillary or accessory teaching that plugs into the Eightfold Path, but isn't part of it directly. So not only is the Eightfold Path a central and core teaching that you need to learn in order to get to enlightenment and thus remove these five hindrances, but there's other kind of associated teachings that you need to learn in order to eliminate these five hindrances. And the seven factors of enlightenment is one of those. So what I would like to do is just kind of give you an overview of the five hindrances and kind of describing what they are and then talk about the seven factors of enlightenment before we move into the five hindrances. And then we're going to spend some extra time talking about right mindfulness and specifically the four foundations of mindfulness because that's really important in terms of being able to be aware and identify these five hindrances should they arise. The five hindrances have some similarities to the 10 fetters. If you're familiar with the 10 fetters, you might have heard some of those as I was going through describing what the five hindrances are because central desire, ill will, uh, restlessness, doubt, 
these are part of the 10 fetters as well. But one of the things that you will notice about the Buddha's teachings is he has this layering effect where he'll kind of pull back different layers of his teachings and get deeper and deeper into them. But also the other thing he does is he has this way of kind of pointing from one teaching to another and kind of recasting that teaching in a unique way. So in the 10 fetters, he's saying these are the 10 things that you need to eliminate in order to attain enlightenment. But then here in the five hindrances, he's saying these are things that are going to hinder you in terms of attaining enlightenment. So it's kind of like a, a recasting or a retelling of certain aspects of the 10 fetters. And he'll do this with other parts of his teachings as well. What you'll notice is that the Eightfold Path and the Seven Factors of Enlightenment are essentially the remedies to the five hindrances. So if you're learning and practicing the Eightfold Path in the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, you already will know what the solutions are, but you still need to identify these as being hindrances so that when they arise, you can employ the right tool to eradicate them. As he's pointing to these teachings back and forth and kind of layering these teachings in different ways, you might have noticed this also with things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts. These are all kind of interconnected in one way or another and kind of layering on top of each other. And as you pull back the covers more and more, you get deeper and deeper into the teachings. It wouldn't be possible to truly speak one teaching in one discourse and share exactly what it would take to attain enlightenment. So the Eightfold Path, this central core teaching, is essentially a framework. It's a structure. It's a foundation. And the Buddha is kind of giving this view of what the path to enlightenment looks like. And then through other associated teachings, he's plugging in more and more details into this Eightfold Path so that you can deepen your understanding of this overall framework or this overall structure. If there are struggles or impediments along the path to enlightenment, it can help to really look at the five hindrances individually and apply the individual solutions rather than maybe some other aspects of the teachings because this can help to remove any kind of obstacles that you're experiencing along the way because you will experience certain challenges and certain difficulties or obstacles as the Buddha called them. Oftentimes when we think about the path to enlightenment, we think about it as this kind of linear thing that we should just always be moving up like this. But in reality, we kind of move up and then we kind of dip down and then we move up and then we dip down and move up and dip down and move up. The progress is forward. We're making forward progress. But at certain times, you might feel like you took 10 steps forward and 20 steps back. But in reality, what's happening is you're probably making, you know, three, four, five, ten steps forward and one or two back. And that's normal as you progress on the path. But once you get to that first stage of enlightenment, from there, the mind won't backslide. There still can be these five hindrances that arise in the first, second or third stage of enlightenment. These hindrances can arise at any point as you're progressing along the path and they can arise even in that first second or third stage of enlightenment but once you get to the first stage of enlightenment the mind has progressed so well and you've seen so much of the truth you're not going to just give up for example but for somebody who is maybe shortly into their practice 
and maybe struggling, they may actually give up along the way if they feel that it gets too challenging or too difficult. They may not be interested in putting forth the work to truly progress on this path. And it just might not be the right time in their life. And that's okay, right? It might not be the right lifetime. It might not be this lifetime that they're going to be able to make the full journey to enlightenment. And that's okay. What you should be interested in is making sure that those things don't happen for you, that as you learn and progress on this path, that at any point you feeling like, gosh, this is just so difficult. This is a real struggle. Maybe I should just give up. That's the time to reach out to your teacher, to other members of the community and look for support and look for help along the way. That's what a community is for and that's what your teacher's for. So be sure that as these hindrances arise or any difficulties or struggles along the path arise, that you realize that you have support from a teacher and you have support from your community to reach out to friends to help you along this path. Of course, you have to do the work, but there's times where you need somebody to give you a hand, help you get up off the ground and brush off some of the dust off of your pants leg. And then once they do, then you can continue to walk, right? So this is kind of normal in life. So don't hesitate to get help as you're walking along the path. Let's talk about the seven factors of enlightenment. What's important to understand about the seven factors of enlightenment is these aren't to determine if you are enlightened. A enlightened being will be practicing the seven factors of enlightenment, but these aren't to determine, it's not the end-all be-all if these seven factors are met then you are enlightened that's not what this is at all rather what this is is these are another tool to help bring the mind into enlightenment and as i said this is one thing out of all the others that an enlightened being would be practicing but it's important to understand each individual factor and how to use them and how to employ them so we're going to talk about each one individually and we'll talk about how to employ them. And then I'll open up for questions and see what questions you guys have related to these seven factors of enlightenment because it's really important that you learn these. The first one is mindfulness. The simple way to think about mindfulness is awareness of mind. Mindfulness shows up in multiple aspects of the Buddhist teachings. As you know from the Eightfold Path, this is one of the major steps. This is step seven on the Eightfold Path. Mindfulness relates to awareness of mind in a general sense. But in reality, there's really four foundations of mindfulness. And we're going to be talking about that at the end of class. There's awareness of the bodily sensations. There's awareness of feelings that are in the mind. There's awareness of the condition of the mind kind of over the last few hours or the last few days, or the last few weeks. And then there's awareness of mental objects. These five hindrances are all mental objects. And there's other mental objects too, but you need to have awareness of the mental object. So if central desire is in the mind, that's a mental object and you need to have awareness of that. Or if ill will is in the mind, that's a mental object and you need to have awareness of that because you can't eliminate something if you don't realize that it's actually there. So mindfulness is utterly important as part of this path to enlightenment and that's why you see it show up at different points in the Buddhist teachings. And here in the seven factors of enlightenment, 
the Buddha shares that mindfulness is always important. It's always important. It should be practiced all the time. In order to get to enlightenment, it's a purification of the mind. We're training the mind to be purified. Well, how could we ever purify the mind if we don't have awareness of it? We need to be aware of unwholesome qualities that are in the mind or that are arising in the mind so we can cut those off and let them go. We need to be aware of the wholesome qualities that are in the mind so we can support those, we can encourage them, we can help them grow. We need to be aware of wholesome qualities that aren't yet in the mind so that we can bring them into the mind and grow them and encourage them to grow. So mindfulness or awareness of mind is utterly important at all times and the Buddha shares that. But specifically, you'll need to develop those four foundations of mindfulness and we'll talk about them in more detail at the end of today's class or towards the end of today's class. The second factor of enlightenment in terms of the seven factors of enlightenment, and remember this is just a tool to use, is investigation. What investigation is, is it's dedicated examination of the teachings, it's research, it's study, it's asking questions, it's digging into the teachings. It's not just believing the teachings, it's really rolling up the sleeves and digging into it. And you don't just you know, plow through the book, you don't just plow through a class, you don't just put things on autopilot, you really dive into the teachings in a real dedicated way to explore and study and research what is it that the Buddha was really teaching so that you can learn deeply and you can reflect deeply. And then you can move that into practice to see the truth for yourself that the Buddha was speaking the truth in order to acquire wisdom. So rather than just believe the universal truth of impermanence, for example, you investigate that teaching of the universal truth of impermanence, you learn it, then you start reflecting on it and thinking about it inwardly. Then you go around and you start practicing and you start trying to find things that are permanent. And if you can't find anything that's permanent, then you know that this universal truth of impermanence is wisdom. It's the truth. And then you can retain that and know that that indeed is the truth and it's wisdom that you've now acquired. So you do this with each individual aspect of the Buddhist teachings. So in order to attain enlightenment, one would need to investigate the teachings and practice this enlightenment factor of investigation. Along with that, they would need to practice the enlightenment factor of energy. What this enlightenment factor is about is having effort, determination, ambition, initiative, motivation, kind of vigor and enthusiasm, a willingness to do something. If somebody was just kind of lackadaisical and just really kind of delayed their progress or delayed their investigation of the teachings, for example, and just really didn't feel like doing anything, then the mind is lacking this vigor. It's lacking this ambition. It's lacking this determination. And not just towards investigating the teachings, but things in your daily life. Because one of the things that you're going to notice is because your mind has been so motivated by craving, desire, attachment, and that's been the accelerating thing in your life that's pushed you and pushed you and pushed you and pushed you to do things, 
As you start decreasing craving, desire, attachment, the mind has a tendency to swing to the other side and become somewhat sluggish and complacent. And it's when you practice this enlightenment factor of energy that you can pick the boots up, you can put on the pants, and you can go out there and cut the grass if that's what you need to do, or take your kids to school, or do some other project, or show some kind of initiative that you need in order to continue to move your life forward. That you can't just sit around and enjoy this peaceful mind state and just completely be lackluster about everything that's going on in the world. You still, as an enlightened being, need to engage in the world by putting in effort and determination to improve your life and to practice all the other teachings. If you're somewhat of a selfish person, for example, and you know that you need to practice generosity and you just keep pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off, then someone's not practicing the enlightenment factor of energy. Or say that you are aware that the mind has anger or frustration or hatred and you know that the remedy is loving kindness and loving kindness meditation, but you just kind of lack the motivation to practice loving kindness meditation and then bring that into your daily life. And you just keep pushing it off and pushing it off. This would be the opposite of the enlightenment factor of energy. So in order to get to enlightenment, you need to have the enlightenment factor of energy where you're applying the effort and determination not only to investigate the teachings and practice the teachings, but also to do things in your home or do things with your friends or your family and apply the effort to bring the teachings into your life through personal and professional relationships and all the things that you're involved in. The enlightenment factor of joy this is joy that springs up in the mind associated with no object. It's unconditioned gladness. The practitioner isn't attaining it through craving, desire, attachment. It's not one of those pleasant feelings. Pleasant feelings are experienced in the mind like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. This is based on craving, desire, attachment. If you're craving a new car and you get it, okay, the mind's happy, or you're craving, desiring, attached to a new pair of shoes, and you get it, okay, the mind's excited, or you've been wanting your friend to come visit you at your home, and you've been craving that and craving that, and finally they come, and now the mind is elated because this has happened. That's a conditioned, pleasant feeling based on some condition, and it's an impermanent condition, so the mind can't retain it permanently. What we're talking about here with the enlightenment factor of joy is practicing that inner gladness, not based on any particular condition. Okay, if you get a car, that's fine. If you don't get a car, that's fine. If you get a new pair of shoes, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine. If your friend comes and visits you, that's fine. If they don't come and visit you, that's fine. You can maintain the joy regardless. It's unconditioned. This joy isn't based on any particular thing happening or any particular thing not happening. It's just always present and always there. And you're going to need to work on that in order to get that to occur. And the way that you get that is by stripping out all the craving, desire, attachment, where the mind is basing its inner feelings on impermanent conditions. When you strip all that craving, desire, attachment out, 
that's when the joy that is unconditioned comes through and you feel this gladness that isn't based on any particular condition because the mind is no longer chasing after the objects of its affection and longing for these pleasant feelings, but instead it can just reside in the middle, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. These three enlightenment factors of investigation of energy and joy, the Buddha suggests that you practice these whenever the mind is sluggish or complacent. So if you're noticing that you tend to be somewhat dull or lethargic or feeling lazy, rather than feeling lazy and pushing off your studies to investigate the teachings, for example, the Buddha suggests just the opposite, that you have to pick yourself up, if there was a self, but you understand what I'm saying, is pick up the mind and start diving into the teachings and start investigating the teachings. And in order to do that, you need to apply this enlightenment factor of energy, this effort, this determination. And when you do, there's this joy that springs up in the mind. Because when we're discontent, and for example, if we're sluggish or lazy or lethargic, it just feels sometimes like the whole world is coming down on your shoulders and there's just kind of like almost nothing to do. The mind might even be bored or lonely. Well, you don't really see a way out of the problems. You just kind of lounge around and somewhat dull and feeling lethargic. But when you can just put in the effort, the determination to pick up the teachings, learn in a class, go to a retreat, reach out to your teacher, do some meditation, really dive into the teachings, this can spring up joy in the mind because now you're practicing in a way that is the escape or the way out of this discontentedness, the way out of this sluggish mind, just sitting on the couch and doing nothing or just sitting back and feeling lonely or bored, you're not applying any effort in order to change the mental state. You're just residing or dwelling in that boredom. You're just dwelling in that laziness. So you have to really put in the effort to practice this investigation. And just like other things, it might feel like there's a bit of a wall there and it's a real struggle to push through that wall. But even if you read one or two chapters, where, you know, in the past, maybe you, for the last week or two, you haven't been able to pick up a book or you haven't been able to come to classes or you haven't been able to view any videos or listen to a podcast. Well, today, if you just do one or two, right, if you just read for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, okay, that's better than yesterday. And just build on that momentum and build on that progress. So whenever you notice that the mind is sluggish, because remember, if you're practicing mindfulness, that awareness of mind all the time, you should be able to observe when the mind is sluggish or lazy or lethargic. Then the way that you pull the mind into the middle and bring it to the middle is you practice investigation, energy, and joy. Then the other three are for when the mind is excited and you can bring the mind down from this excited condition into the middle. This fifth factor of enlightenment is the enlightenment factor of tranquility. This is where the mind is relaxed, steady, stable, peaceful. There's a stillness to the mind, right? It's not bouncing around. 
It's not restless and running around. It's not overactive. One of the ways that you can help with this is if you currently are ingesting any caffeine to eliminate caffeine because caffeine will stimulate the mind and create overactivity in the mind. And it will be hard for you to go against that stimulant, that drug, and create this tranquility in the mind and bring it to a relaxed, steady state. Well, if the body is used to that now, you're going to probably have to gradually phase that away. But as you do, you can then with mindfulness, observe the mind more clearly and start practicing this enlightenment factor of tranquility, where the mind's relaxed, steady, stable, peaceful, and still. This is really important as part of getting to enlightenment and bringing it from that excited state into the middle. The sixth factor of enlightenment is concentration. This is where the mind is mentally alert and attentive. So here with tranquility, the mind is relaxed and calm, but yet with concentration, it's attentive and alert, right? This is making sure it's in the middle because if the mind was just completely relaxed and completely calm, you might think, well, that's almost like leading into laziness or complacency or a lethargic condition. But you have this factor of enlightenment called concentration that maintains the mental alertness or attentiveness. Being able to focus on just one single object or having singleness of mind. This is where you shouldn't train the mind to try to rapidly cycle from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Because if you do, the mind's going to be overactive. And this is why it's actually in the excited state oftentimes, because the mind is rapidly switching from one thing to the next. So when you notice with mindfulness that the mind is excited, you start focusing on just one thing at a time. And more and more, the mind will actually like that. When you first start working with these, the mind might be craving doing multiple things and rapidly switching from thing to thing to thing because that's what it's been used to for 30 years or 40 years or however many years. That's what it's been used to. So when you start focusing on just one thing at a time, it can be very uncomfortable for the mind and it doesn't like it. But that's exactly why you need to do it and train the mind to be content with just focusing on one thing at a time. And that's part of what you're doing in breathing mindfulness meditation. You're developing concentration, but you're also developing it through practicing singleness of mind because you're just focusing on the breath. Whenever the mind wants to go somewhere else, you're cutting it off. You're letting it go and bringing the mind back to the breath. So if you can train the mind over multiple countless meditation sessions to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, by just focusing on the breath and meditation and just that one thing. Well, now when you're in a conversation with somebody, wow, you can focus on just that conversation and only that conversation because you've trained your mind in meditation to only focus on the breath. Or if you're at work and you're focusing on a certain task or you're talking with your children or something like this, if you've trained your mind to just focus on the breath and meditation, practicing the singleness of mind, and then outside of meditation and daily life, you don't allow the mind to race from thing to thing to thing. Then when you're engaged in conversations, for example, on a personal or professional level, you can give your full attention to this person 
And then that's where your gamma, the results of your decisions really build. Because there's one thing that you know is that when you're talking and somebody pays attention to you, you really like that, don't you? It really feels good that someone's not distracted looking at their phone or thinking about something else or asking you to repeat things over and over again. So when you focus with clarity of mind and singleness of mind, concentration on just one thing, and you're able to do that in personal and professional relationships, not only are you going to be comprehending what's being shared and be able to process that more readily with this optimized mind, but the person on the other side who's speaking to you is going to feel more connected to you because they're going to feel like you're really truly listening to them. And this is going to help you build your relationships with people. So the enlightenment factor of concentration is part of the seven factors of enlightenment. But just like mindfulness, it's also a major step on the Eightfold Path because it's so important. And this is the overlapping of some of the Buddhist teachings. This seventh factor of enlightenment is equanimity. And you might remember this from the Brahma Viharas. Again, this is the overlapping, the layering of the Buddhist teachings. This is also a factor of enlightenment and something to practice when the mind is overactive and excited. You can bring the mind to the middle by practicing equanimity. What equanimity is, is this mental calmness, this composure, this evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations. And then there's this other component to it, which is treating people impartially. That's more part of the Brahma Viharas than it is part of the seven factors of enlightenment because the seven factors are, of enlightenment are meant to bring the mind to the middle. So if the mind is sluggish, lethargic, or lazy, you practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, energy, and joy to bring it to the middle. You're kind of lifting the mind up. Where if the mind is already excited, then you're calming it down and bringing it down to the middle by practicing tranquility, concentration, and equanimity in order to bring in that calmness, the composure, the evenness of temper, and being able to reside with the mind perfectly in the middle, optimized, and being able to focus with clarity of thought and concentration. And this is why the mind ends up developing more memory, is that you're able to retain things because you're focused on just one thing at a time. Whereas if the mind was overactive and excited, you're going to have a tendency to not be able to focus, not be able to retain things. You're also going to have very quick, rapid bodily movements, which means you're probably going to injure yourself, like stumping your toe or falling off of a sidewalk and twisting your ankle. Also, if the mind is overactive, there's going to be a tendency to speak really fast and really rapid, and the people aren't going to be able to understand you, who you're talking with. So one of the ways to show loving kindness and compassion is to make sure that your communication is such that the person who's listening to you can truly understand what you're saying. So by training your mind to come to the middle with these enlightenment factors, you're able to ensure that your interactions with all beings are such that you're not causing any harm. And now just one by one, you can have very dedicated, precise conversations where you're accomplishing what you need without all this kind of erroneous noise and distraction that the mind will sometimes have when it becomes sluggish or when it becomes too excited. So this is how we use the enlightenment factors 
to bring the mind into the middle. And it's all based on this mindfulness, having awareness of the mind at any point where you notice the mind is sluggish or excited, you need to practice the appropriate factors of enlightenment to bring it to the middle so that you can find that middle and you can reside there. One of the ways that you'll know that the mind is in the middle is it'll be peaceful, it'll be calm, there's that serenity, there's that contentedness, there's that joy. It's almost like the mind is, takes a breath. When it gets into the middle, it's like, ah, there's the middle, right? When there's craving, desire, attachment, and the mind's pushing, 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 go, 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 go. You feel all this stress and all this pressure, almost like just never enough is enough, right? It's just go, 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 go. And eventually you end up getting a headache, you get fatigued, you get tired. It doesn't feel comfortable for the mind or the body. Same thing when the mind is lazy or lethargic. It doesn't feel comfortable for the mind or the body. The mind is just dull and almost like there's all this cloudiness in the mind. It's almost like the mind is stuck and the body can have aches and pains. But when you bring the mind to the middle, even if you experience that for a few hours or a few days, it's almost like the mind and the body take a breath and it's like, ah, there's the middle. That feels quite nice. And that's where you can reside, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But you need to use these enlightenment factors to kind of bring the mind to that middle. So let's pause here and see what questions you guys have about any of what I discussed so far, just the overview of the five hindrances or any of these seven factors of enlightenment. You can put your comments into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, the moderator to get your question asked. Or you can raise your hand electronically and ask your question in Zoom or your follow-up question. Hi, David. So to clarify, it's appropriate that we look at the seven factors of enlightenment as essentially a toolkit for finding the middle? Yes. Of course, the Eightfold Path is the middle way. That's the path to enlightenment. But on that path, you're going to experience these other aspects of the mind that need to be refined. So while you're practicing right speech or while you're driving in the car or while you're doing other things, you're going to notice that the mind experiences these sluggish conditions and these excited conditions. And as it does, you can use these enlightenment factors to bring the mind to the middle. And an enlightened being would be practicing all of these at one time. They're going to always be practicing mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. You're going to see that as part of their permanent practice. But while you're making your way to enlightenment, remember that symbol where it goes around in a circle and then you kind of narrow in on enlightenment closer and closer and closer? Well, this is what you do is when your mind swings over to sluggishness, you bring it back with these investigation, energy, and joy. Or if you notice your mind goes to this excitement, you bring it back with tranquility, concentration, equanimity. But ultimately, when the mind is in the middle, you're practicing all seven all the time, along with the full path and all the other teachings as part of this path. When we look at the second factor of enlightenment, investigation, this is an investigation that goes beyond, for instance, when we're reading the teachings. This is a 
life purpose of investigation than seeing the world as a teacher in some sense. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So the books, the videos, the classes, the podcast, you know, the personal guidance, all of these things are just to help you do that intellectual learning. And that's part of investigation, but it's just intellectual learning. You haven't really accomplished a whole, whole lot at that point. I mean, that's the first step. You need to take that step. And that's why you need a teacher in order to guide you and introduce you and share the teachings with you. But once that intellectual learning has happened and you, it's kind of a repetitive process because you can't just learn something once and be done you're gonna have to ask multiple questions and hear any particular topic multiple times before you truly get it but then you have to move it into reflection where you look inward and then really investigate it kind of looking inward and see well these five precepts are they really beneficial for my life like if i did those things would it cause harm to other people or cause harm to me? Oh, yeah, it sure would, wouldn't it? So you kind of look at those things really, really closely. But then as part of that investigation, you move those things like the five precepts and the Eightfold Path and everything else into practice. And as you do and you start practicing these teachings and you notice, wow, I stopped stealing from people. People enjoy being around me more. I have more friends. Hmm, I stopped lying to people. Wow, people trust what I'm saying more. I have better personal relationships. Or I stopped taking substances that cause heedlessness. Wow, the mind's more clear. It's more focused. It's more concentrated. I don't wake up with headaches and feeling achy in my body or things like this. So part of that investigation is moving the teachings into practice. So it's that three-pronged approach of intellectual learning, reflecting by looking inward and then move it into practice and that's where you truly discover the truth is in your practice the intellectual learning is exposing you to the teachings the reflection is kind of pointing you in the right direction and you're kind of getting a a good hunch that these teachings might be true but it's really when you practice them that you truly acquire the wisdom and see the truth that they're working to improve the condition of the mind and the condition of your life and when we look at the third factor, that being energy, something that came to mind was an issue that plagues a lot of us, that being procrastination. And I, that seems to go directly against the factor of energy. And I was wondering if you had any advice on dealing with this. Yeah, that's why that enlightenment factor of energy is there, because an enlightened being isn't going to be a procrastinator. They're not going to have this huge stack of undone things, right? because their mind's gonna be in the middle, in the present moment, and they're gonna be handling things why they, when they come up, right? As soon as something comes up, boom, they handle it. They handle it. Now, sure, they might have to wait a couple of days to get some more information, or they might have to take their time in order to make a wise decision, but you're not gonna find this backlog of undone things that are just kind of laying around where they did things 25% of the way and then just walked away from it or 50% of the way and they just walked away from it. They're going to have things really well tidied up in their life so that by residing in the present moment, if something happens, they can address it right away and it doesn't last for a really long time where it just delays, delays and delays and more and more difficulties and complications happen because this 
particular issue or particular decision that needs to be made is just being dragged out for so long. So when it comes to things like procrastination, you know, there's no magical bullet of something that you can do that just says, okay, you know, press the shoulder here and then boom, you're going to immediately not procrastinate anymore, right? At a certain point with these teachings, you just got to pull up the boots, you got to pull up the pants and you just got to put your nose into the books or the classes or the whatever and start investigating those teachings. And the Buddha talks about these enlightenment factors as one leading to the next, right? So that by investigating the teachings, then there's this energy that comes with it because you need to really put forth this energy in order to investigate the teaching. So by pushing the nose into the books and pushing it into the online classes, and that might be a bit of a challenge for you to get through that procrastination and just get to the point where you're investigating the teachings. But as you do and you start practicing the teachings, more and more energy will come into the mind where as you're letting go of this burden of carrying around the craving, desire, attachment, then this energy starts to spring up in the mind. And then with that energy springs up this joy. So the Buddha talks about them as being one connected to the next and leading in one to the next. You'll see that as you get further into this book series in some of the later volumes where he talks about one leading to the next. But with procrastination, there's no secret thing that you can do that just eradicates procrastination. At a certain point, you just got to realize sitting on this couch and doing nothing isn't going to produce any results whatsoever. There needs to be some kind of action. I need to take action here. That just sitting around doing nothing isn't going to produce something. But then also you have to realize that if the mind's overactive and really rapidly cycling from thing to thing, that's not healthy for the mind either. So you just take one thing at a time, at a time, at a time. And when we look at the factor of concentration and we see single-mindedness, and the encouragement toward that, this seems to go against what we're often taught in society about multitasking. So is this factor telling us that multitasking is something we should be avoiding? Yeah, multitasking isn't actually possible. If you really notice what the mind's doing is it's actually rapidly switching from thing to thing to thing. You can't eat a sandwich, watch TV, and talk to a friend on the phone all at one time. You're either talking to your friend for two or three seconds, five seconds, your mind is there. Then it switches to the TV and you kind of take in however many seconds of that. Then it switches to the sandwich, but you're not actually doing all three things. What you're actually doing is you're training the mind to rapidly switch from thing to thing to thing to thing. And the more things that you try to do at one time, the mind's not actually doing all those at one time. It's just cycling rapidly from thing to thing. And when you get off the phone, your friend didn't feel like you really talked to them and you really had a an in-depth conversation. And whatever was on the TV, you didn't truly understand it and gain the real value and benefit of what was there. And the body didn't truly get nourished from the food that you were eating. So when you get off the phone and you finish all three of those activities rapidly cycling, You think you got a lot done, but this is actually the delusion or the ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. In reality, you just kind of made one of your close friends or family members 
a little bit disgruntled because they didn't feel like they had your full attention. So now you're going to have to clean that up at a later time. So you're actually spending more time having to clean that up. Whatever you watched on TV for whatever period of time during that conversation, you didn't really gain the full benefit out of that. And you didn't really get the full benefit out of this food either. So you end up actually spending more time cleaning all this stuff up. So even though it goes against what you've been taught probably your whole life that you can do all these things and that makes you a more productive individual, those people are prioritizing quantity of task versus quality. And an enlightened being is more interested in quality because they know that if they are not putting good quality, they're not putting wisdom into each individual thing that they're doing, they're just going to have to clean up the mess later and it actually takes more time. So if you're talking to a friend on the phone, talk to the friend on the phone or the family on the phone. Sit down, have a detailed conversation, get done what you need to get done. It might only be a five or ten minute conversation. But if you're rapidly switching from TV to phone to food, that might draw out for 45 minutes or an hour. And again, it's taking you actually more time, but the delusion is you think you're accomplishing more. But in reality, you're degrading the quality of the mind. You're degrading the quality of your concentration. And now when you're done with that, you go to the next thing and your mind is spinning. Your mind is cycling. And this is the overactive mind. And now you're trying to do a concentrated activity and you can't because the mind is spun up from all this overactivity that you've been training it to cycle from thing to thing to thing to thing. This is where children go to school and they end up getting uh, labeled as ADHD or ADD that they can't focus. They have attention deficit disorder because they've just been brought up in a way that they've been taught to cycle their mind from task to task to task to task. So then when they're sitting in class and their teacher's talking, they can't focus on just one thing. Their mind is somewhere else. So by training early in life, and if you are an adult, you can still train your mind this way to focus on one single thing at a time. You'll actually get more depth, more clarity, more results. And you'll actually find that it takes you less time to do just one thing at a time and you'll get better results from it. Thank you, David. Nick has his hand raised, so let's go to Nick. Hello, teacher. I was wondering if you can help me identify um, which one to work on uh, of something you know, recently being encountered. Um, for for I, I, I don't know how long, uh, maybe months, six weeks, two months. I, I wasn't really keeping track. I just felt like um, progress was really good on fire with energy, getting a lot of things done, even even um, doing a lot of jujitsu, a lot of studies here. It, just uh, energy through the roof, awareness through the roof, everything going really well, basically. But then uh, last week or so, well, maybe it's just this week, um, noticed concentration going down. You know, so I started looking at the... Um, uh, the symbolisms and the teachings, you know, I was like, oh, maybe I'm off shot. I'm coming back to the middle. I'm on the downturn, something like this. But then I'm looking at the seven factors of enlightenment, and that's across the mind for uh, the practice, too. While, while I'm encountering this, I was trying to self-remedy, find an antidote. Um, if it's if it's energy, like you know, maybe I'm just tired, you know, maybe that's why my concentration is just down. I should do 
steps two, three, and four, investigation, you know, energy and joy. But, but then again, if the problem is concentration, you know, that's in the other one. Um, or, or just focusing on number six, concentration. But, but the problem is, like I've noticed, it's harder to concentrate, especially like this last week. Mine's been wandering, I've been catching it. And I just don't know why, because it wasn't doing that before. But the only change I've done is I've tried to practice more singleness of mind. Um, not looking at the phone during red lights, not bringing it into the bathroom, more singleness of mind. I don't know, maybe my mind's fighting back, not wanting to be tamed. And uh, uh, when I'm just trying to do normal things like pay attention to something I'm watching or, or learning or, or just trying to concentrate in meditation, my mind's starting to wandering more than it was. It's like acting untamed. So I was just looking for advice on that. Yeah, you're seeing that clearly, Nick. When you start trying to strip away the craving, desire attachments, like not looking at the phone at the red light or not using the phone in the bathroom, some of those other things that you mentioned, the mind doesn't like that. It doesn't like that impermanence. Whenever it starts experiencing impermanence, then the untrained mind that isn't yet enlightened is going to experience discontentedness. It's going to feel a bit muddled. But that's just because the mind, like you said, it doesn't want to be tamed. It's revolting. It's, it's still trying to pull in the direction of the objects of its affection. So you'll go through this period where it'll feel like things are kind of muddled, like you're maybe walking through the mud and you've got mud around your feet. And it feels like you're kind of walking through a mud bog, so to speak. But what you do is you just stay on top of your practice, the full path which includes your meditation, which includes these seven factors of enlightenment, and you just keep working through it, and eventually the mind will move past that impermanence, it'll move past that muddleness, and it'll move more into the middle. But by that point, you will have given up the phone at the red lights, the phone in the bathroom, and those other things that you mentioned. So when you start making shifts and changes to your practice like this, things feel like they're getting worse before they get better. But in reality, things are getting better. The mind just doesn't like this impermanence that you've given it. But that's all the more reason why you stay the course and keep walking forward. And thank you, teacher. I was just wondering, so just stay the course, everything I was doing, nothing specific on these um, seven factors of enlightenment to, to focus on, just always practice them as normal. Yeah, always practice all of these. But if you're noticing the mind is sluggish, then you practice investigation, energy, and joy. If you notice it's excited, then you practice tranquility, concentration, equanimity, and just always practicing mindfulness. Always be practicing the Eightfold Path. The problem isn't that you're noticing more, let's just say, muddled mind and lack of concentration. The problem is that your mind wants what you had before. The mind was concentrated and you felt like it was kind of in the middle and optimized and it was kind of ticking along pretty nicely. And now that you've introduced this impermanence, the mind is having to work its way through that. But see, the mind wants what you had before and that's making it feel worse rather than just recognize, okay, this is the present moment. This is where the mind is. Let me just stay dedicated, determined, and diligent on my practice. I'm doing all the right things. I just need to get over this hump and just keep walking forward. But as long as your mind is craving what you had before, 
and waiting with anticipation as when is that coming back, then the mind is craving. So you have to let go of that craving to have what you had before and just realize that's not where you're at, but you're making your way forward and just keep walking forward. Oh, that's great. Thank you, teacher. I'll take the advice. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. I was wondering, David, I thought I understood you to say that there's a connection, like a chain, almost an order between the factors. I was wondering if there's anything that we can take away from that. For instance, if we need to work on joy, is it important that we first address energy? Or if we need to work on concentration, is it important that we first address tranquility? If you're going to work on joy, you need to start with investigation and then go to energy and then joy will spring up as part of that. And then if you would like to work on equanimity, it's important to develop tranquility, concentration, and you'll see more equanimity come into the mind. So this is how they, they work together. You can't just work on energy to get to joy. You actually have to start with the preceding one. Okay. But it is important that we essentially practice them in some order, essentially. Yeah, I mean, you're really kind of moving through them at the same time and kind of practicing them all at one time. But the Buddha talks about them as one leading to the other. So, for example, you wouldn't be able to spring up joy in the mind by itself. You would need to investigate the teachings because by investigating the teachings, you're eliminating the craving, desire, attachment. And it takes energy to be able to do that. And then that's what springs up the joy is that you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment. You wouldn't be able to just kind of go in and produce the joy, for example. So there is kind of a sequential order here, but you're kind of like working with all of them at the same time. Thank you, David. Let's get a Basim now for our Zoom questions. Thanks, James. We have a question from Juni. He asks, how does the four foundations of mindfulness apply to the factor of mindfulness as a factor of enlightenment? So the four foundations of mindfulness are a deeper description of mindfulness. So when we talk about right mindfulness as part of the Eightfold Path, or we talk about mindfulness as part of the seven factors of enlightenment, we're still talking about the same mindfulness. And generally, you can think of it as awareness of mind, but on a much deeper level, it's actually the four foundations of mindfulness that one would need to develop in order to get to enlightenment. So whether we talk about it as the seven factors of enlightenment or right mindfulness in the Eightfold Path, it still goes down into those four foundations of mindfulness. And that's what needs to ultimately be understood and ultimately needs to be practiced. Because without understanding those and practicing those, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. But when people first start learning, I usually introduce mindfulness as just awareness of mind. But Ultimately, you have to get down into the deeper level to understand all four foundations and practice them accordingly. Thanks, teacher. No more questions for now. Okay, so let's move into the five hindrances and talk about these one by one. And we remember there's a real connection here to the 10 fetters, but now we're talking about them as hindrances and specific things to use to remedy them. The first one that the Buddha talks about is central desire. And this is the practitioner trying to please the senses, the eyes, nose, tongue, ears, body, and mind. So here, the 
These are referred to as the six sense bases. We also refer to them as the doorways to discontentedness because anything that comes into the mind to cause discontentedness is going to come in through one of these six doorways. So for example, the eyes see certain forms. You see a form, a physical form. You're either going to see an agreeable physical form or you're going to see a disagreeable physical form. And if you see something agreeable, the mind's going to take that as pleasant feelings and get these pleasant feelings based on this agreeable thing. Or if the mind sees some form through the eyes that is disagreeable, then the mind's going to experience painful feelings. So let me just give some silly examples. Let's say you see a really nice shiny sports car and it drives by and the mind's like, oh wow, look at that red shiny sports car. I always wanted one of those. Oh my goodness, if I could just get one of those, everything would be perfect in my life, right? That's agreeable form. The form, the physical form is the car. It's seeing it through the eyes. This is agreeable to the mind and it produces these pleasant feelings in the mind. But now let's say you see through the eyes a person who hits a child or abuses a child and this is disagreeable to the mind. And now the mind gets angry or frustrated or irritated because of this, right? That's a physical form. That's a doorway to discontentedness. In both situations, the mind is discontent. One, with agreeable forms, it's pleasant feelings. With disagreeable forms, it's painful feelings. But nonetheless, that is a hindrance to enlightenment because as long as the mind is looking at things as agreeable and disagreeable and it allows the mind to be shaken up by these two things, then it's not going to be able to experience the middle where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So an enlightened mind might recognize the car and say, oh, that's a beautiful car. Or it might recognize that this person is doing something harmful to a child but the mind's not going to be shaken up and experience discontentedness as a result of it. Now, what you choose to do in that situation is totally up to you. That's your free will choice. But doing whatever you do, whether it's help the child or take some other action, you do it with a calm, unaffected mind. Whereas if the mind is shaken up with anger, you're going to make unwise decisions that lead to unwholesome results. So that's why the Buddhist teachings are to bring the mind to the middle so the mind's not shaken up. And with that stableness, that steadiness, you can then continue to make wise, wholesome decisions being unaffected by these agreeable or disagreeable forms, for example. Likewise, the ears, they hear certain agreeable sounds or disagreeable sounds and it's going to experience discontentedness as a result, or certain odors in the nose, or certain flavors of the tongue, or certain physical objects that come in contact with the body, or certain mental objects that the mind recognizes. In all six cases of these six sense bases, there's going to be agreeable things, there's going to be disagreeable things. And as long as you allow the mind to crave pleasure through these senses, then you're chasing after the pleasant feelings. Therefore, you're welcoming in the painful feelings that are going to come at some point. So this would 
be a hindrance to your enlightenment because the mind is shaken up by these impermanent conditions around. The way to remedy this is through the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, specifically using breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. These are the two generalized trainings that you need to be practicing on an ongoing basis in order to train the mind to let go. Because that's the whole problem is the mind is longing with a strong eagerness through these six sense bases. And what breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity are doing is training the mind to let go and reside in the middle. And then you need to also practice what we call guarding the doorways to discontentedness. If you're aware that there are certain agreeable and disagreeable forms or sounds or odors or flavors or physical objects or mental objects that affect the mind, you need to guard the doorways. Don't extend the senses out into the world where you're allowing the mind to be triggered by these things. So you need to be able to guard and kind of retract and restrain the mind by pulling it back. We call this guarding the doorways to discontentedness. The second hindrance is called ill will. This is anger, hatred, hostility, aggression, resentment, frustration, irritation, annoyance, and all these other versions where the mind has this anger, this hostility. I talk about it when we discuss the animal consciousness where the mind's aggressive and I don't like what you just did and it becomes angered. Well, this is going to affect your enlightenment because as long as you're treating people that way, then people are going to treat you that way as well. And you're putting this harm into the world. So therefore, harm is going to come back to you. You need to eliminate this in the mind. And the way that you do that is through loving kindness meditation, cultivating loving kindness through active, dedicated training sessions to transform your mind to have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be peaceful, including your own self, your own being. You're not trying to change other people through your meditation. You're trying to transform your mind and eradicate all of these feelings of anger, hatred, hostility, aggression, resentment, frustration, irritation, and annoyance, transform that into peacefulness and an interest in seeing beings be well. And you do that in meditation and then in daily life, you practice it where you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings through your intentions, your speech, and your actions. Don't allow the mind to become hostile or rough or harsh towards anyone for any reason. Now, of course, you're not going to be able to do that, even though you heard me say that. And even though you know it's part of the path from this point forward, you're not going to be able to be perfect. And don't put that expectation on yourself. But where you notice with mindfulness that the mind is angered or has aggression or is frustrated or irritated, you cut that off and let it go. And you work on being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. And in places where you see that you haven't been that way, and maybe you catch yourself mid-sentence or five minutes after the conversation, apologize, right? That helps to clean up your karma. That helps to 
wipe away some of the unwholesomeness. It still doesn't change the mind necessarily at that particular moment. You still spoke in a harsh way or you still had harmful bodily actions. But at least if you can catch it halfway or catch it five minutes, an hour, two hours, three days later, you go back and apologize to the person. That's better than just doing something harsh and then leaving it out there to come back and harm you later. So where you observe that the mind has ill will or any of those lesser versions, you want to actively work to cut that off and let it go. And where it came into your speech and your actions, don't hesitate to apologize. Even if the other person was yelling and hollering at you and you yelled and hollered back, be a bigger person, be a better person. Don't think that they deserved what you did to them or that you spoke. What you're doing is you're focusing on your practice. Even if you restrain the mind for 15, 20 minutes and someone was yelling and hollering at you and then the last two minutes you yelled at them, you fix that last two minutes because that's your part of the puzzle here. Even if you have just 1% of the issue, they're 99% wrong perhaps in your mind and you've only got 1%. Work on your 1%. So the way that you do that is practice loving kindness meditation practice being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful in daily life. And wherever you make mistakes and you aren't on your practice, cut it off, let it go. And if you need to apologize, apologize. The third one is complacency. This is oftentimes discussed in some of the traditional texts and some of the traditional translations as sloth and toper. This is a really old a way of referring to this particular hindrance. So if you see that in some of the older translations, just know that I use this word complacency because it's a better description, I feel, using the words that we use today because most people have never seen the word or phrase sloth and toper before. What complacency is, is this dullness, this lethargy, this lack of motivation where the mind just doesn't want to do anything. You don't want to go outside. You don't want to go to work. You don't want to have conversations. You're not interested in maybe even taking a shower or brushing your teeth, right? This is where the mind can oftentimes feel very depressed based on all the stress and anxiety that's bombarding the mind. So where you observe that complacency, you can practice those enlightenment factors of investigation, energy, and joy. Because this complacency that we're talking about here is that sluggishness of mind. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to bring it up out of the rut, so to speak, and bring it into the middle through practicing investigation, energy, and joy. So let's pause here and see what questions you guys have on any of these three before we talk about the next two. Looking at the first two with sensual desires and ill will, we seem to see overlap with the three poisons with craving and anger. And I was wondering, is this referring to the exact same qualities and it's just an example of overlap in regards to presentation of the teachings? Exactly, James. It's just that overlap. It's another way of thinking of it, thinking of it as an hindrance to your enlightenment rather than something I have to attain. Think of it as I got to get rid of this stuff because it's going to hinder me from attaining enlightenment. These are obstacles or impediments to your enlightenment. 
Okay, that's all that we have for now. Okay. The next one is called restlessness and worry. There's this fetter in the 10 fetters called restlessness. And what restlessness is, is it's kind of like a confused, distracted, restless state of mind. It's like almost like an overactive mind. It can't just be in the present moment and calm. It's always coming and going. It's always running around here or there. You'll observe that in the mind, but you might also observe this in your bodily movements as well. If the mind is overactive, you'll tend to end up tapping the table. You might bob your knee where you're bobbing your knee at a particular thing. There might be certain things that you observe about the physical body that's overactive because the mind is overactive. So if you see this overactiveness or this restlessness, that's a hindrance. You need to get rid of it as part of the 10 fetters, but also as this obstacle to enlightenment. Because what that overactive mind is going to do is it's going to end up creating confusion and distraction in this restless state of mind where you can't just reside in the present moment and be peaceful, calm, serene, and content, right? The mind's not content. So the body starts almost shaking in certain places, either tapping a finger, bobbing the knee, or any other number of kind of repetitive movements in the body. But when we talk about the hindrance, we go beyond what's in the 10 fetters and we talk about this aspect of worry. One of the aspects that will hinder you in attaining enlightenment is that you will worry about your own unskillful conduct. Once you start learning these teachings and you start learning about how killing and stealing and sexual misconduct and lying and substances that cause heedlessness have these unfortunate results in terms of the quality of state of your mind and the quality of state of your life and also rebirth and rebirth into various realms, uh, lower realms specifically, the mind might actually develop this worry where you hear your teacher or you read a book, you learn a certain aspect of the teachings and you're putting this expectation on yourself to be perfect right away. And then you observe that you're not perfect right away and you're making these mistakes. Or I don't even think of them as mistakes. I just think of it as the mind's not yet trained to practice these teachings fully because you just learned them. And if you've just been studying for the last seven months in this program, you've literally just learned these teachings. And it would be impossible for you to move all of them into practice at the snap of a finger. That's utterly impossible. So when you have a certain fault or you backslide or you observe that, yeah, I didn't use right speech with my child or I didn't have right action with my friends or my wife or my husband or my life partner. When you notice that you haven't been skillful in your conduct, if you allow that to create worry in the mind, that's going to hinder you from progress. What you need to do is instead of putting the expectation on yourself that you should be perfect just because you heard in class or you read in a book that this is the path to enlightenment and this is how you attain enlightenment, rather than having that expectation that you should be perfect today, realize that it's a gradual progression and realize that if you're observing that your speech is harsh, but you're just not able to practice speaking gently, rather than worry about that, actually be pleased with that. 
because before you learned these teachings, you were might have been just walking around haphazardly speaking harsh with everybody. And that was causing you untold amounts of problems in your life because you're walking around just speaking harshly, unrestrained, lacking mental discipline, causing all kinds of harm in the world. Therefore, harm was coming back to you. So now that you've learned these teachings and you know that speaking gently, for example, is part of these teachings, rather than being worried when you notice that you're not speaking gently here and there, instead, be pleased that, wow, at least I'm observing it. At least I have the wisdom now to know that this isn't helpful for my life practice. I have awareness of mine. I've spotted it. I've observed it. I don't like it. I see how it's affecting my relationships. And I'm interested in cleaning this up. Let me apply effort and energy to clean this up. So that's the way to remain positive that you can work towards improvement rather than allowing this worry or this anxiety to set into the mind that you maybe are working on not hitting your children, but you hit your child, or you're working on speaking gently to your life partner, but you spoke harsh here and there. Rather than worry about what that outcome might be, look at, okay, 20 minutes ago, I spoke harsh with my life partner. I didn't like it. I was wrong. I realized I was wrong. Let me figure out how to clean this up. Let me work on this. Okay, my mind's calm. I'm thinking clearly. Let me go back and apologize to them and let them know that I'm sorry for this, right? That's a way to clean it up and rather than sit there in the worry and have anxiety about it. So if you have that worry, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It shows that you have this moral concern that the Buddha talked about. The Buddha talked about seeing danger in the slightest faults, right? That's a good quality to have, having this moral concern that, yeah, morally here, I yelled at my partner, I yelled at my children. Morally, I'm concerned that this isn't going to be helpful for my life practice or for my relationships around me. Okay, that's a good quality. But when you allow the worry or the anxiety to come into the mind, then you're kind of stuck. You're almost frozen. I don't know what to do because I'm so worried. Instead, put that into action and say, okay, I just slipped up off my right speech. I've been working on that for a few weeks and yeah, I don't have it mastered yet. So what do I do now? I'm in the present moment. My mind's more calm. Let me just go apologize and let them know that I'm utterly sorry for what I just did and I was wrong. Even if they were yelling at you too, right? But take ownership over your part of the puzzle, your part of the pie, right? And this can eradicate the worry. But with that, the way that you remedy this overactive, restless mind is you practice the enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Along with that concentration, like we talked about, is that singleness of mind, that right concentration. That's how you bring the mind into being able to focus on just one thing at a time and not get spun up into this restlessness and into this worry. The last hindrance that the Buddha talks about, which is also part of the 10 fetters, is doubt. The doubt that he's talking about here has multiple aspects to it. There's doubt about the Buddha, that he was actually enlightened, 
There's doubt about the teachings and whether or not they can actually lead to enlightenment. There's doubt about the community and whether this community is able to support you and help you along this path. There's doubt about your teacher, whether your teacher can actually guide you to enlightenment. And there's doubt about your own ability to be able to learn and practice and progress to enlightenment, right? All of these doubts, if they enter into the mind, will hinder you from attaining enlightenment. And it doesn't mean if this doubt comes into your mind that you're bad, you're doomed, that you know it's going to cause all these complications for you. But where you observe doubt with that mindfulness, then you would like to apply effort to eliminate this doubt. And I even usually talk about when you first start this path, a little bit of doubt is actually quite helpful because if you doubt whether the Buddha was actually enlightened or not, that can create an inquisitive mind that makes you interested to actually investigate his teachings to a certain degree. But as you're learning and as you're practicing and as you're seeing more and more of the truth and you're gaining this wisdom and you're seeing some of this peacefulness come into the mind and you're seeing some calmness and you're noticing things that you used to get angry about, now you're just kind of irritated or annoyed. Hmm, these teachings are helping me. Or things that once caused sadness, you just feel like I'd rather that not happen anymore. Right? And you start noticing this diminishing of discontentedness. This starts to help erode any kind of doubt about the Buddha, the teachings, the community, your teacher, and your own ability to attain enlightenment. So as you're noticing, even just little steps along the path, you don't need to have arrogance. You don't need to have pride. Don't allow that conceit to come in. But observe, hmm, last week, I didn't do meditation hardly at all. This week, I did once a day for seven days. That's an improvement, right? Take that as acknowledgement that you've improved. And notice that after you meditated every day for seven days, the mind's in a better condition than it was last week. Okay, well, now let's increase that a little bit more. Let's try to get to twice a day for this next week, and let's work on that. Well, you know what? If you only got twice a day for four days out of the week, don't feel disgruntled. Don't worry. Don't feel like you're bad or you're wrong just because you set your goal for twice a day for seven days because you got at least four, which was better than last week. So you need to have that inner discipline, that inner motivation that you don't get down on yourself just because you didn't maybe reach a certain expectation. Set a goal, set an objective, and then walk towards it. And then as you're walking towards these goals, know that you're not always going to hit the goal every time. But then just refocus and inject some motivation into your practice that as you progress along this path, you start eroding this doubt that you have about the teachings because you're noticing that the condition of the mind is gradually improving. The way to eliminate doubt truly is to practice the enlightenment factor of investigation. As you're practicing the enlightenment factor of investigation and digging into the teachings more and more, then you have more intellectual understanding of the teachings, you're reflecting more, you're practicing more, and you're seeing the results more. One of the best things to erode doubt is to get to results. 
but you can't get to the results if you don't investigate the teachings. So by you coming to class, by you reading books, watching videos, podcasts, uh, reaching out for personal guidance, by you reflecting, by you meditating, by you moving right speech into your practice, moving right livelihood into your practice, moving right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration deeper and deeper into your practice and refining it more and more and more, dialing it in closer and closer, refining it, getting more and more precision with it, it's going to produce more and more results. That's the best thing to eradicate any kind of doubt because you're going to see the improvement in the condition of the mind and the condition of your life. Because this wisdom that you're gaining through investigating the teachings is going to lead to results. With these five hindrances discussed and talked about, there's really kind of one hindrance, which is the biggest hindrance of all of them. If you were going to boil down the hindrances to just one hindrance, it doesn't show up as part of the five hindrances because it's such a big hindrance that it's just everywhere in the Buddhist teachings. So when we talk about the five hindrances, we don't necessarily talk about this particular hindrance. But you need to understand that this is like the hindrance of all hindrances. And that is ignorance or unknowing of true reality. That's the biggest hindrance of all hindrances. Because how could you ever attain enlightenment and eliminate discontentedness if you didn't learn the teachings and gain the wisdom that it's craving, desire, attachment that's causing discontentedness? As long as the mind is ignorant to that, as long as the mind is unknowing of true reality and practicing wrong view, thinking that other people and other situations is what's causing your discontentedness, as long as the mind is ignorant about that, it's never going to attain enlightenment. As long as the mind is unknowing the true reality of the five precepts and it keeps killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, substances that cause heedlessness, how could it ever attain enlightenment if it continues to do those things? If the mind doesn't understand things like right intention and right speech, right action, and all the other aspects of the Eightfold Path to include meditation, if it's ignorant of that, if it's unknowing of true reality, and it doesn't even know what meditation is or how to practice it or the fact that you need a teacher to help you on this path, how could it ever even make any steps or strides towards enlightenment? So that's the hindrance of all hindrances. And through learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings to acquire wisdom, that wisdom is the antidote to ignorance. And that's what unravels all of this. So learning these five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment and all these other things that you're learning in these programs, you're unraveling that ignorance or unknowing of true reality by gaining wisdom. But you have to move that stuff into practice to see the truth for yourself. And as you do, then you can lo also look at these other hindrances in more detail and apply the very specific remedies that you need along the way. Any questions on any of these? So in some sense, the whole path is the antidote to ignorance, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. That's the number one problem. And the number one solution is learning and practicing the entire path. And 
In volume one, I boil it down to about six or eight kind of core teachings that I suggest anybody who's just starting out on this path focus on. And particularly people who are in this program that you've been in this program for seven months so far, there's a lot that we've covered in this program. There's a lot that we've covered. And there's a lot that you still can learn by repeating this program. But if you were going to boil all of this down and be like, David, give me just six things or eight things to really focus on in the coming months, what would that be? Well, it would be the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the Brahma Viharas, the seven factors of enlightenment and practicing meditation extensively, really refining your meditation. And I put this at a couple different places in volume one so you can see very clearly what do I consider to be the core teachings of what to really focus on. Because if you focus on all of those things, your mind's going to get to the jhanas. And once your mind's in the jhanas, then we can start focusing on or you can start focusing on eliminating the 10 fetters. But at any point along the path of focusing on those core teachings, any of these hindrances can arise. And if you understand the remedies to them, then you can work to resolve them. Because the goal early in practice is to put together those core teachings that I just talked about, because that's what's going to get you to the jhanas. And once you're there, that means you're putting these teachings together pretty well. Things are matching up pretty well. And now it's time to start focusing on eradicating those 10 fetters to get you into the first, second, third, and fourth stage of enlightenment. Let's get to Miranda now. Hi. Um, I guess I really, it's more of a question about the seven factors of enlightenment. Um, is it normal, I guess, for a mind that's resided in, like this mind, this personality, I know that I really need to work on the tranquility, concentration, and equanimity because very overactive mind, personality is very bubbly and excited all the time. So I find that it's more of a challenge to work on those than it is to work on investigation energy, because the energy is already there, and joy. Do you find that's normal? People kind of reside before entering into the path on one side of that or the other, and that's the challenge there is to bring that one side towards the middle. Everybody's different, right? And the mind can swing at different times. You can notice that the mind is sluggish or lethargic or complacent, and you start practicing investigation, energy, and joy, and you do that for a while, and then, boom, the mind swings over to being overactive, and now you have to bring that down. And that's where sometimes you might have to back off of the investigation of the teachings a little bit and maybe not read the teachings for three or four or five days to kind of bring the mind down to come to the middle. So if you understand what's springing the mind up and what's bringing the mind down from the excited state, you can almost dial these in and kind of tweak them as you need. But everybody's going to be experiencing different things and the mind's going to be swinging at different times but that's where the mindfulness is that's where that comes in if you're practicing mindfulness all the time like the buddha teaches 
then you can be very attentive to where the mind is at any given time and then apply the certain solution that you need to remedy it. Okay. And then also, sir, you had spoken before about personality. Even when a person is enlightened, when they're an enlightened being, they still have a personality. So what does that mean for someone who is just by personality and excited, bubbly, kind of bouncy personality, does that calm down a bit or does it stay the same or does that change? Do you think a bubbly personality is permanent? No, sir. Right, so no. someone will still be positive. Someone will still be upbeat. An enlightened being is going to be positive and upbeat. They're not going to be like down in the dumps or like this, but they're also not going to be bouncing off the walls either, right? So their mind's going to be restrained. It's going to be in the middle. So they're, an enlightened being is going to be positive, going to be cheerful, going to be upbeat. They're not going to have that uncontrolled excitement. So if that's what you're experiencing at certain times, then you're going to be able to restrain that and be able to control it rather than allowing it to just explode almost like a firework in certain situations. Okay, that's understood. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. When we looked at number four and five, worry and doubt, you mentioned that we shouldn't feel bad about where we are. Is it important to avoid feeling guilt on this path or to attempt to move away from it? Yeah, the guilt is another part of discontentedness. And it's related to the example that you gave. If you're craving perfection, that I should be able to read a book or I should be able to listen to my teacher and then go out and be perfect. If you're craving that, then yeah, there can be some guilt that comes in when you do things that you feel like you should have been perfect on. So rather than allow the mind to slip into that guilt, even though it probably will at certain times, observe that that's coming from your own craving, desire, attachment, train the mind to cut that off and let it go based on whatever the craving, desire, attachment is. And experiencing guilt and worry, all of these things that you're experiencing is completely normal in terms of an unenlightened, untrained mind. So if you experience guilt, you're not wrong, you're not bad, you didn't do anything wrong, it's just what the unenlightened mind does. So just observe it that way and then just look for the remedy and know that that guilt is impermanent. So just look for the remedy rather than feeling like you're wrong or you're bad, you're not perfect, I'm not good at this path, I'm never going to get enlightened, I feel guilty, so I'm going to give up. This is that one comment that I made, James, that you asked me about a about a month or two ago where, you, where I mentioned how the feelings that brought you to this path can sometimes be the same feelings that will make somebody quit the path, that it's guilt and discontentedness and shame and fears and all these things that maybe motivated somebody to start walking the path. And then as you're walking the path and you experience that guilt and shame or whatever, you might also feel like, oh, I'm no good at meditation. I'm just going to stop. My mind is too busy. I can't do meditation. Well, no, that's the exact reason why you should be doing meditation, right? But this is a common thing that some people will share that they feel like, oh, I'm no good at this. Therefore, I should give up. Well, the reason why you should be doing the path to enlightenment is because your mind is no good at this. But don't think of it as being no good at this. Think of it as just 
Yeah, your mind's unenlightened. So you're going to be experiencing all these things that the Buddha talked about. You're going to be experiencing stress, anxiety, guilt, shame, fear, frustration, anger. The thing is, is that we're kind of taught growing up, if you've been brought up in a Christian background, and a lot of people who study with me have been brought up in Christian teachings. Jesus didn't necessarily teach this, but it's being taught today that, okay, you should learn the teachings, believe them, and instantly be perfect. And what you're taught is Jesus was perfect, so therefore you should be perfect exactly like Jesus. And if you don't live your entire life perfectly, then you're going to be doomed to hell, right? And it's like, whoa, that was like a ton of bricks that just came at me. Like, how am I supposed to do all this stuff perfectly from the very beginning? Like, isn't there any kind of like warm up period or any training period? Like, how do I, uh, what? Perfect from the beginning? Are you serious? So if your mind has been conditioned to think that you're supposed to learn something and then you're immediately supposed to be perfect, well, that's where the guilt, shame and worry and anxiety and things like this actually comes into the mind. But you've got to put all that to the side and realize that wherever you learn that stuff, that's not what Jesus taught. It's not what the Buddha taught either. And it's not what I'm teaching. Instead, you got to look at this as a life practice that you're gradually learning, you're gradually training, you're gradually practicing, and you're gradually going to experience progress. And that means that your progress isn't going to be completely on an upward trajectory, that you're going to have times where you get angry. You're going to have times where you feel guilty. You're going to have times where you use harsh speech. But the difference between before the path and now that you're on the path when you're on the path, you have mindfulness and you're aware because you've got wisdom. This harsh speech isn't leading anywhere good and wholesome. I need to fix it. Where in the past, you were just going around speaking harshly to everybody, just knocking down trees and burning up the forest. Now you're like, oh man, I just knocked down a tree. How can I make that better? I don't, I'm not interested in knocking down any more trees and I certainly don't want to catch it on fire. So you kind of more cautiously walk the path, but you're still going to knock down some trees along this journey because the mind isn't completely refined yet. So rather than feel guilty or shameful about that, just realize that your mind is in training. It's kind of like when you were learning to get your driver's license. Did you learn in school and then get in the car and instantly become an expert driver? No. I mean... <laughs> Think about the whole process of driving. You had to figure out how to start the car, put it into drive, buckle your seatbelt, put on your turn signals, wash the windows. All the different things that we've ever learned in life have been gradual and steady. Even learning language to be able to understand me speaking today or read the book that I've written. You've been preparing for this moment to listen to me speak and read this book your entire life, starting from kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, all the way through, you've been gradually learning English to get to the point right now today where you can understand what I'm saying. So why would you put the pressure on yourself that you would learn something from the Buddha or even Jesus Christ, if we want to include him, from any of these people and that you'd be able to instantly implement it? When you learned how to write 
the letter A, were you able to instantly write the letter A perfectly from the beginning? No. Were you able to instantly drive the car from the beginning perfectly as an expert? No. You haven't done anything your entire life that way. So we shouldn't put the expectation on ourselves that with any of this stuff along the path to enlightenment, that you're going to be perfect from the beginning. Even a Buddha himself took six years to get to that perfection. So it takes some time. So just relieve yourself of that stress and just enjoy the journey. As we look at the five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment and some of the things we've been discussing, is there a certain point in our progress on the path that we should really begin actively considering these things? These five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment, you know, the seven factors of enlightenment and the Eightfold Path, those are part of the core teachings that I share that everyone should be learning and really focusing on early in their practice. If you're focused on practicing the Eightfold Path and the seven factors of enlightenment, you will eradicate these hindrances. But the challenge is, is that you don't always invoke the right teaching at the right time by being aware that these are hindrances and you can observe them with mindfulness and you know the remedy to fix it. When you're noticing complacency and you're down in a rut, you can bring out the appropriate teaching. Or when you're worried and you're anxious and you're having that unskillful conduct and you feel that stress coming in, you can invoke the proper teaching. So one of the things I said recently in a class is I talked about how an enlightened being essentially becomes an amazing problem solver. Essentially what the Buddha is giving you is this toolbox or this tool belt of how to solve all these problems that the mind encounters. And as your mind encounters these various problems, you invoke the certain tools that remedy that. But it's going to take you some time to get familiar with this toolbox. So understanding the Eightfold Path and practicing that, understanding the seven factors of enlightenment and practicing that is the part of this path that you need as you get started. But you also should be aware of these hindrances so that when they arise, you can then invoke the proper tool at the proper time. But again, you're not going to be perfect on that. And that's why it's kind of wise to meet with your teacher regularly, even once a month, once every two months. Some people, when they first start out, once a week, once every two weeks, that you kind of can talk with somebody that can spot some of the things that are going on in the mind. And we can point you in the direction of teachings that you need in order to get past something because even though you're learning these five hindrances now don't be surprised if like two or three months from now you're feeling complacent you're feeling lethargic you just don't know why and you don't know how to fix it and you completely forget about the five hindrances that's completely normal because the unenlightened mind is very muddled it lacks concentration it lacks memory so even when you learn something like this you're not going to be able to recall it at the right time and understand how to actually implement it. So that's where if you're meeting with your teacher regularly or you're involved in the community with some friends and some people that are part of our community, you can have people that you can get help from. That's just part of this whole path is being able to learn these things, but then realize that you are going to forget certain aspects of them. You shouldn't expect yourself to be able to recall this just because you learned it in one class. And that's where you reach out to people for help 
as part of the community. Thank you, David. Let's go to Basim now. Well, we have a question from Johnny. He asks, I find that the hindrances are often introduced to my mind when watching or listening to news programs. Any advice on how to avoid ignorance and staying informed without absorbing these hindrances? One of the things that I suggest if you're having trouble when you're watching news programs is eliminate those from your life for a period of time. And it might take you to kind of gradually do that because the mind oftentimes craves that. But if you can eliminate something like news, even for two or three months, there was a time in America where I eliminated it for a year. And that was like the most peaceful year ever. Not saying that you shouldn't be aware of what's going on in the world, but one of the ways to get to enlightenment is strip your life down, strip the mind down to like bare bones minimum. That ensures that there aren't craving desire attachments. There are craving desire attachments there now, but you might not be aware of what all of those are. So one of the ways to enter into this objectively is just assume and know that there's craving desire attachments there. Strip your life down to bare bones minimum, just your wife, your kids, work, studying these teachings, meditating, things like that. And then as you do that for extended period of time, then the mind is going to come into more peacefulness, more mental discipline, and then start kind of adding in some things like news every once in a while when the mind is more restrained and you have more control over it. So if you're noticing while you're watching the news, it's a rising discontentedness. The Buddha talked about this where he said, we shouldn't continue to do things that we notice are causing discontentedness. We should kind of pull that back and kind of strip it out like I'm talking about. So if you do that for a period of time and then you decide later to kind of slowly bring it back in when your mind is more trained and more disciplined, that would be wise. And then if you bring it back in and you're noticing the mind becoming unrestrained again, then you can let go of it again, go another period of time without the news, and then slowly kind of introduce it again, a little by little. This is a common one, Johnny, that a lot of people have challenges with, with the news, because the mind's craving for things to be a certain way in the world. And when you hear things that aren't that way, you can see the suffering, you can see the despair in the world. And this is where the loving kindness and compassion can go into excess. And what you'd like to do is kind of bring that more into the middle where the mind's not trying to hold on to the world so much. And one of the ways that you can get to that is by letting go of the news and know that you'll be okay, that you still can conduct your life just fine without seeing the news because other people will tell you what's going on. And then when you go three, four, five, six months without it, if you slowly introduce it back in, then the mind is more controlled and disciplined at that point, and you won't find any kind of discontentedness. But if you do, then you just strip it back out for a little while, work on the mind some more, and then slowly introduce it back in. Question from it. Isn't guilt in the past? Isn't it in the thoughts? So guilt is from craving desire attachment. Whenever there is discontentedness in the mind, it's going to be from craving desire attachment, the mind wanting or craving or expecting this longing with strong eagerness. So it's feelings that come into the mind, but what's causing it 
is craving, desire, attachment. You need to look at the Four Noble Truths. We talk about this at the very beginning of this program, which we're about to restart. So next Sunday, we're going to be talking about right view and right intention. There, I'm going to talk about the Four Noble Truths as part of the beginning of the group learning program. It sounds like you're not quite clear on the Four Noble Truths yet, and you need to break through to understanding those so that you can see exactly what discontentedness is and guilt is part of that. And it's being caused by craving, desire, attachment. And you can eliminate it from the mind, but you have to eliminate craving, desire, attachment as part of walking the full path. But I'll explain it in detail next Sunday. Or if you'd like to look ahead, you can look at chapter four in volume one. And there's other classes that I taught that teach this. So you can look on our YouTube channel or our podcast and you can look at that stuff now if you like. Okay, so let's talk about mindfulness because mindfulness is utterly important as part of these seven factors of enlightenment. It's utterly important in terms of being able to identify the five hindrances. It's utterly important as part of the Eightfold Path. As I mentioned at the beginning, this whole path to enlightenment is all about purifying the mind of the conditions that are creating discontentedness. Craving, desire, attachment is that condition that's creating discontentedness. Anger, hatred, ill will is what's causing the mind to push people out of your life and wreak havoc in your personal and professional relationships. Ignorance is the unknowing of true reality and that's hindering you from experiencing this awakened, enlightened mind. But the only reason why you would know any of this is if you practice mindfulness. So you need to be able to practice mindfulness as part of many different aspects of the path to be able to purify the mind, to be able to observe the unwholesome qualities and eliminate them and to observe wholesome qualities and cultivate them. So let's talk about mindfulness as it relates to all these different parts of the path to enlightenment. Right mindfulness is awareness of mind. You can just think of it that way simply. And this will help you if you're just starting out, you haven't maybe been part of this program for a very long time, and you're just starting to kind of get your arms around the Buddhist teachings. Just think of it as awareness of mind, and you can almost forget about everything I'm going to share with you for the rest of this talk if you're just new to the path. But if you understand awareness of the mind and you've been practicing it for a bit and you're aware when there's anger there and you're aware when there's happiness there and you're aware when the mind's frustrated and you can see that. okay. well, now let's take it to the next step where you need to develop the four foundations of mindfulness. The Buddha describes these at different points in his teachings. He refers to them as body as body, feelings as feelings mind as mind, and mental objects as mental objects. But putting that into a bit of language that you can understand, what you're going to ultimately need to cultivate and develop in the mind is awareness to be able to observe bodily sensations. Because before the mind becomes angry, there's certain bodily sensations that are experienced. There might be some sharpness, some heat, some uncomfortableness in the stomach or the neck or the shoulders. Everybody's a little different. You might feel some pressure around the heart. 
there's going to be certain bodily sensations that you notice before the mind ever becomes angry, before it ever becomes frustrated, even before it becomes happy or excited or elated. There's going to be some bodily sensations that precede pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And you need to start becoming aware of those bodily sensations so that then when you notice the bodily sensations arising, you can cut them off and let them go. And that is ideal. You wouldn't be able to do that if you didn't have mindfulness. If you weren't aware of the bodily sensations, you wouldn't be able to cut them off and let them go. So you need to start developing your awareness of the bodily sensations. You also wouldn't be able to cut them off and let them go if you didn't practice breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity. Those are the trainings that you're using to train the mind to easily let go. So while you're working on developing mindfulness and awareness of these bodily sensations, you're also training the mind in meditation to be able to easily let go when you're alerted that these bodily sensations are occurring. If you don't catch it at the bodily sensations and you're not able to cut it off and let it go there, then these are going to come into feelings in the mind. You're going to experience happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, all kinds of pleasant feelings based on your craving, desire, attachments. You're going to experience painful feelings based on your craving, desire, attachments like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. They're going to move right through the bodily sensations and become feelings in the mind. You're also going to notice feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, like boredom, loneliness, shyness, kind of uncomfortable, displeasing feelings in the mind. Well, if they made it to feelings in the mind, you can also try to cut it off and let it go there. And that would be the next best thing. But if you don't cut it off as feelings, then it's going to affect the condition of the mind. You're going to experience multiple hours or days or maybe a week or two of the condition of the mind being influenced and changed based on any one particular event. These feelings coming into the mind are going to pollute the condition of the mind and affect it for longer and longer periods of time. But you can cut it off and let it go there as well. If you don't do that, then it's going to form what's called a mental object. This is a more deeply rooted, almost like a container that is deeply rooted in the mind. So let me give you an example here. We're going to take the example of ill will, since that was one from the five hindrances. The mental object is ill will. But in order for ill will to get deeply rooted and planted in the mind as a mental object, there would have been multiple situations in someone's life where there was bodily sensations, that there were feelings of anger, hatred coming into the mind, it affected the condition of the mind for longer and longer periods of time. And eventually there's this deeply rooted, seated mental object of ill will. Once it becomes a mental object, it's much harder to get rid of. It can still be eliminated, even if there's ill will in the mind as a mental object. It can still be eliminated. But 
a wise practitioner would be aware of all of these four foundations of mindfulness so that you can eradicate this from the mind. This is how you ultimately get to peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You apply right effort to eliminate this discontentedness as it's arising as bodily sensations. You cut it off and let it go. But right out of the gates, in the first few months of learning this path, that's not going to be so easy for you because your mind hasn't been deeply trained in breathing mindfulness meditation. And you may not even have awareness of these bodily sensations. So they're probably going to move into feelings. It's probably going to affect the condition of the mind. And early in your practice, you probably have lots of different mental objects that are deeply rooted in the mind. But as you become aware of these four things, then you become better and better at working to eliminate this so that the mind no longer experiences these conditioned feelings of painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings are neither painful nor pleasant. Or another way to say that is pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. One of the ways to think about the four foundations of mindfulness is think of it as a wild bush that the bodily sensations are like the root, the stump, right? The stump of the bush. And then the feelings are kind of like that first layer of branches that go out from the stump. And then the condition of the mind are kind of like those thinner branches. And then the mental objects are like the leaves at the very edge of the bush. What you would like to do is you like to trim this wild bush back further and further and further to get it all the way down to the stump. Because once you can trim this bush all the way down to the stump and cut it off there, then it won't regrow. But as long as you're not aware of these mental objects or these conditions of the mind or these feelings, then you can't get back to the bodily sensations and cut it off there. So by building your awareness of mind and cutting it off sooner and sooner and sooner, you're saving yourself a boatload of challenges. Because if there's certain situation happens and there's anger that starts to arise and you notice it as bodily sensations and you cut it off there, done. It never comes to feelings in the mind. It never pollutes the, the mind. It never affects the condition of the mind for the next three days or the next three weeks. It never becomes a mental object. So that's what you ultimately would like to get to where you can observe anger, frustration, irritation, arising as bodily sensations. You have such awareness of that. Boom, you cut it off and let it go. But in order to get there, you have to also see these pleasant feelings. You have to see that your friend just came over and there's this enormous amount of excitement that just overwhelms the mind when your friend shows up to come visit you and the mind just wants to be so excited. Oh my goodness, my friend's here, yay! Right? You have to not allow the mind to get to that heightened level of excitement. You have to see it as bodily sensations and cut it off there. It doesn't mean you're numb to the situation. It doesn't mean that you're just like, hey, welcome, glad you're here, right? No, it's like, oh, Barbara, you decided to come over. Wonderful to see you. So nice to have you here. Welcome. Come on in. Have a seat. Right. 
but you don't allow these conditioned feelings to exaggerate the experience and take the mind into feelings that are super excited. So you've got to see the bodily sensations that when Barbara comes over, you feel these sensations in the body start to arise and you cut it off and let it go. Because if you don't do that, then these painful feelings are going to come in. You're going to welcome in the painful feelings by allowing the pleasant feelings to come in. So this is how you develop the four foundations of mindfulness is being aware of them. You can develop them in meditation when you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation and you notice the bodily sensations on the body rather than scratching them or itching them. You can cut them off and let them go. You can observe the feelings in the mind during meditation and you can cut them off and let them go coming back to the breath. And you can observe this stuff in meditation, but by cutting it off and letting it go, coming back to the breath, then in daily life, as these things are happening, you can cut it off and let it go so that you can then train the mind to be in the middle. Okay, so that's what the four foundations of mindfulness are. There's more content in chapter five. When I introduce that in volume one under right mindfulness, you'll see this written out there in chapter five. Let's see what questions you guys have about the four foundations of mindfulness. Would you say that to even begin on the path, we have to have some level of mindfulness to pull us in that direction? And from there, it's all about developing that mindfulness further, essentially? Perhaps you can think of it that way. You know, I think that the vast majority of people who decide to get on the path, they at a certain level are uncomfortable with discontentedness. They may not know what's causing it. They may not understand it. There, there's something in their life that's off and they don't necessarily know what that is. And they end up somehow getting into learning the Buddhist teachings. And then if they get matched up with a teacher and they choose a teacher that can truly explain the Four Noble Truths to them in a very clear way and make that breakthrough, then they can see that they're causing all their own discontentedness and that they can eliminate it as well. So they're at a certain level if you're aware of sadness or anger, or frustration, or any of these other discontent feelings, and you understand that something's off in the life, and you happen to realize that maybe the Buddhist teachings can help you, then it's just a matter of finding the right teacher to be able to explain it to you and has the resources to be able to guide you on the path to eradicating this. Because as human beings, you know, we think that sadness, anger, guilt, shame, this is all just normal, right? We should just accept the fact that, okay, we're human beings. We're going to experience this stuff. We've experienced it our whole life and there's no way to get rid of it. That's what essentially some people resign themselves to. Some people are utterly surprised when I say that, no, you can actually eliminate that stuff. Feeling those discontent feelings is completely optional. You don't have to experience that stuff. Some people just are dumbfounded that that is even possible because they've never even heard anything remotely close to that. But if they take their time and they look at the Buddhist teachings and they really sincerely investigate what it is that the Buddhist teaching, you can see very clearly 
that you can eliminate 100% of this discontentedness. And if you get on the path with the right resources and the right teacher, within a relatively short period of time, you should start seeing a diminishing of these discontent feelings to give you enough indication that, whoa, I'm on the right path here. Because I'm noticing three weeks ago, that would have really sent me off in a fit of rage, but now I'm just kind of a little bit irritated by it whoa, that's some pretty good progress. So if you see those kind of situations, that is an indication that you're headed in the right direction. But you have to get to the point where with this mindfulness that you're so much despised discontentedness and you're not interested in it whatsoever that you would like to distance your life and your mind from this discontentedness, that you are no longer going to accept this discontentedness in your life. You're still going to experience it as it gradually diminishes as you work towards enlightenment. But you have to get to the point where when it arises, you despise it so much, not in a negative way, not in a disparaging way, but rather than just letting the discontentedness dwell in the mind that you investigate it and look at it closely and despise it so much that you don't leave any stone unturned to eradicate it out of the mind. It seems that without mindfulness, we would be almost purely reactive beings. Is it mindfulness that allows us to take control of our lives, essentially? Yes. Mindfulness is so utterly important. Like thinking about being out of control, James, you know, like let's use an example of someone who road rages, right? We're all kind of familiar with that. Someone who gets cut off in traffic, pulls a baseball bat out of their back of their truck or their car, the trunk of their car and they start bashing windows. Maybe they even drag the person out of the car, bash them and kill them. They end up in jail. Why? Well, they had that mental object of ill will. They weren't aware of the condition of the mind. They weren't aware of the feelings. They weren't aware of the bodily sensations. That mental discipline of that person was so far gone that they just ended up in jail for the rest of their life because somebody cut them off in traffic. That's how enraged the person was that they didn't have the mindfulness on multiple occasions to understand these bodily sensations, these feelings, this condition of the mind and mental objects. I don't consider this person a bad person. I don't hate this person. I don't look down on this person. It's just unfortunate that they never encountered the teachings of the Buddha to be able to train the mind to make some wise decisions to understand these teachings and move the mind closer and closer to enlightenment where they could have enjoyed a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy rather than allowing something simple as someone cutting you off in traffic to completely unravel. And this is where the mind is very diluted. It's very ignorant or unknowing of true reality because in that situation, It just blew right through the bodily sensations, feelings, condition of the mind, moved right into wrong action and just completely destroyed your life in that instant. But that instant, there was a whole lot of cause and effect that led up to it. There was a whole lot of bodily sensations, feelings, condition of mind forming this mental object that led up to it. Somebody isn't completely peaceful and they wake up in the morning and they're completely road raging, right? That doesn't happen. It's this gradual process of getting to the point where someone lacks any kind of control of the mind whatsoever. And that's why it's also a gradual process 
to come out of that and eliminate that. And yes, it's mindfulness that allows us to really see the mind and be able to purify it along this path. Without mindfulness, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. But we could also say that about without right speech, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. Without right concentration, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. Without a lot of these things, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions we have on mindfulness. Okay. Anything from Zoom, Possum? Okay. So I would just like to thank you all for joining today's program. As some of you may know that this is our last class for this iteration of the group loaning program. And on Wednesday, we're going to be restarting from the very, very beginning. So what I would suggest for anybody who's tuning in now that's planning to either retake this program or you're going to be starting from the beginning essentially because maybe you just found out about us recently, then I suggest you acquire a version of this book. You can download it from our website, buddhadailywisdom.com. There's a link for free books and you can download it or you can get a printed copy from Amazon or you can take that file and go print it yourself if you like. I'm not interested in anything other than you learning and practicing if that's what you choose to do. So don't worry about buying this book from Amazon or anything like that. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in seeing you get the help that you need to learn and practice and progress along this path to enlightenment. And without this book, to be able to go through the program and actively learn, it would be a little bit more challenging for you. You can still just show up to these classes on Sunday and Wednesday if you like and learn from the oral teachings. But if you can combine that with this new technology that Gautama Buddha didn't have 2,500 years ago, this new technology of having a book to read either on your electronic device or in printed form, then you can combine that with the talks that I do each Sunday and Wednesday. We're going to start off on Wednesday talking about the overall program, the structure of the program, how it works, how to progress through the program, and all the various aspects of the program. Next Sunday, we're going to be starting a three-part series. We're going to be taking the Eightfold Path, which is the path to enlightenment, and we're going to be breaking it down into its three individual sections. And each Sunday, for three Sundays, we're going to be covering that section of the Eightfold Path. So this Sunday, a week from today, we're going to be covering right view and right intention. That makes up the wisdom. So we're going to be diving in and really exploring just those two steps. The following Sunday, we're going to be studying right speech, right action, and right livelihood, just studying the moral conduct and really diving into that. The following Sunday, we're going to be diving into the mental discipline, which is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. By splitting it apart like this into three separate classes, we can really dive in and investigate each individual aspect of the path, giving you an overview of the entire path to enlightenment, but also really penetrating deep into the actual teachings that lead to enlightenment. So we're going to be doing that over the next three Sundays. And then on our Wednesdays, we're going to do a four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation because this is a very important part of the path to enlightenment. Without this breathing mindfulness meditation, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. But there's a lot more than just that that you need in order 
to attain enlightenment. So we're going to spend four Wednesdays diving into breathing mindfulness meditation. That's going to start a week and a half from now. But this next Wednesday coming up, we're going to really just introduce the program, talk about it, and then do a kind of light meditation together to kind of get you started on the path. So anybody who's been part of this program or that you're joining this program, thank you all for everything that you've done to participate, asking questions, making offerings of donations, the moderators. I really appreciate all the effort and energy that you guys have put into this program. It's been wonderful to see this program come together the way that it has. This is the third time that I've taught it. We're gonna be starting the fourth time. And I feel like the students are getting more interested, more sincere, more serious into rolling up the sleeves and really learning and practicing. I feel like the moderators are really tuned in to helping you guys to get your questions asked during the class and making sure that we really have an engaging discussion throughout the class. So it'll be really interesting to see where this fourth iteration of the group learning program takes us. But either way, I really would like to invite you, welcome you, and thank you for being part of this group learning program. So until next time, have a lovely rest of your day. I'll see you then. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.